0: You're listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract, the official podcast of the Journal of Addiction Medicine. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract is produced for your enjoyment and is focused on the latest journal-published research and science in the field of addiction medicine. Remember to add us to your favorites in iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at ASAM.org and Facebook now let's go beyond the abstract
1: welcome to addiction medicine beyond the abstract i'm your host dr sean mcneil and today we're joined by dr joshua sharfstein who's a distinguished professor at the johns hopkins bloomberg school of public health and sarah Whaley, a senior practice associate at the johns hopkins bloomberg school of public health so welcome both of you to the podcast in today's program i would like to discuss your article from the journal of addiction medicine entitled Opioid Settlements, the Role for Addiction Medicine in Guiding Effective Spending. Um, This article focuses on the roughly $56 billion of settlement funds, which is to be allocated to jurisdictions nationwide. So Dr. Sharfstein, I would like to begin by um, having you give us some of your background, telling us about yourself, and describing how you got involved in the field of addiction medicine.
0: So I am actually a pediatrician, and my career has been in public health, and So my first introduction to addiction and addiction policy was working on Capitol Hill for Congressman Henry Waxman. Um, But then I became the health commissioner of Baltimore City, um, which has um, a major challenge of addiction. And so I became very interested in the kinds of policies that can address addiction and overdose at a population level. Um, and then I subsequently worked at the Food and Drug Administration and the Maryland Department of Health, and I engaged with issues of addiction in both roles. Since 2015, I've been at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and I've worked with a number of different states and cities and counties as they have um, worked on the challenge that is um, drug use, overdose, and addiction in the United States.
1: And Sarah, how did you become involved in the study and treatment of addiction? And also, what course has your career taken?
2: Yeah, so I started my career um, in social work. So I've worked for many years providing direct service to folks with mental health and um, behavioral health needs. I joined Johns Hopkins in 2018, working on a research team, and that research was primarily focused on people who use drugs. Um, I joined our current team in 2020, working on the Bloomberg Overdose Prevention Initiative, which is how I got involved um, kind of in the policy side of public health and addiction.
1: Very good. Um, So for some of our listeners who may be aware of the opioid settlements or or may not be aware, um, can one of you please explain the origin and the scope of the opioid litigation and how it came to result in such a large settlement?
0: So the uh, opioid epidemic that the nation has experienced over the last 20 or so years has its roots in um, a tremendous rise in prescribing of opioid medications for pain. And what has become increasingly evident is that that was not the result of um, a... Uh, methodical, thoughtful decision by the field of medicine to, you know, quintuple the number of um, or amounts of opioids prescribed. It was in part, at least, um, because of very strenuous and in some cases quite deceptive or fraudulent marketing of opioids for pain and. Um, that affected many, many aspects of medicine and led to people getting prescribed opioids that they didn't need and opioids in larger quantities and in certain formulations that they didn't need and led to many people getting addicted. And um, they, the problem was certainly with certain manufacturers, but it also extended into the distribution system where enormous amounts of opioids were being um, shipped pharmacies without uh, reasonable levels of oversight um, to make sure that they're being used reasonably. And that contributed to many people getting uh, opioids that they didn't need. And so um, as the scale and the consequences of this challenge have become apparent, um, litigation has followed basically um, accusing the companies of being responsible for the harm to the population, many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people dying of overdose, many, many families and communities being devastated by the consequences. And so um, much of that litigation has been settled. In other cases, companies have gone bankrupt and um, the proceedings are playing out in bankruptcy court. But really, what we're seeing is funding that is becoming available because of the um, the consequences of the fraud and misconduct of certain companies, manufacturers, and others um, that uh, had a responsibility for the opioid crisis in the United States.
1: And Sarah, do you have a comment or perhaps an explanation of the cases and the dollar amount of the settlements?
2: Yeah, so where we are now, and I kind of I think when we talk collectively about the opioid litigation and the opioid settlements, we are mainly talking about the cases that states and local governments have brought against the opioid manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies. Um, there's separate cases brought by the tribes against those entities as well. Um, but the the state and local governments, those settlements will amount somewhere around $50 billion that will go to those jurisdictions.
1: Okay, wow. And, and you mentioned in your paper that there are may be large differences in how these funds are utilized from state to state. Um, can you explain how some of the states are expected to allocate these funds?
0: So
2: with this settlement specifically, there are some guardrails um, for the state and local governments in how they can use the funds. So the majority of the funds, 85%, have to be used towards opioid abatement. Um, opioid abatement is kind of a loose term and, and is kind of broadly defined, but in theory, that 85% will be used to address the opioid crisis within these states and local jurisdictions. Um, we have seen kind of already some states make different allocations between the state portion and the, the portion that goes to lo- local governments. So there's a default, but many states have adopted that. So some states like North Carolina have given the majority of the funds to local governments, whereas other states have kept it kind of mostly controlled by the state government. From there, states will make the decision on what um, types of programs or interventions the dollars will be used towards.
0: It may be helpful to think about, if, if I could jump in for a second, it may be helpful to think about the settlements as providing a menu to those states and localities for what are permitted uses of the funds it's a pretty broad menu there are certain agreements that were made with the attorneys who brought the litigation so there's a, a lot of latitude for what the states and localities in whatever distribution has been worked out within that state there's a lot of latitude for how they actually spend the money
1: well since Uh, The Journal of Addiction Medicine is geared towards research, not exclusively, but there is a lot of research published in the journal. Um, Do you anticipate any trends in regards to research that may develop as a result of this opioid settlement?
0: Well, I think the funds themselves are likely not going to be used for basic research, generally speaking. There may be a few exceptions to that, but I do hope that some of the funds will go particularly for evaluation of whether or not the uh, investments of the settlement dollars are actually
1: working. Okay, and how do you see the opioid settlements uh, impacting education? Um, Do you foresee any new educational efforts outside of the traditional academic medical centers?
0: Um, I have not heard of that, although it's conceivable. I think the other potential use would be to educate um people about the harms of opioids, in particular educating prescribers um about the potential harms of opioids and to help them um become better prescribers.
1: I like that. Now as you mentioned in the paper, um there continues uh, to be a large number of opioid deaths, including um, as you cited, over a hundred thousand opioid deaths in two thousand twenty two. Um, do you believe the opioid settlement funds will be sufficient to turn the tide on this trend? Or are there other resources that need to be in place um, to address this epidemic?
0: Well, these resources alone will not be sufficient. But these resources could be used in combination with other resources to achieve major shifts in policy and programming that could make a difference. Um, that would be my view. So, First of all, they're not the only resources out there. The federal government is spending a lot of money, um, in some ways more money even than the, the these settlements over the next 20 years, um, in order to address addiction. And so if the new money can be combined with the federal investments, with state investments, and they can work together, for example, the new money funding, certain um community-based activities that maybe aren't so easily reimbursed through federal funding, for example, then you may be able to get further. The other thing is the funding could leverage changes. For example, if a hospital wants to apply for funding, then people may say, okay, you can apply for funding. But first, you have to make sure that you're meeting best practices for, for treating patients with addiction, patients in your emergency department, patients on your floors. So, if you use well creatively um, and in combination with other resources that are out there, it could make a a difference. There's a lot at stake here.
1: It sounds like you're saying maybe this could be used to encourage facilities to bring their standards up to the standard of care um, or perhaps even exceed the standard of care. Exactly.
2: I'll just add that I also think that this is a really important opportunity for jurisdictions to look at what they have been doing in the past. So kind of taking uh, a landscape of the programs that are being funded through other, other funding sources to look at any kind of gaps in services um, and then use these dollars to, to support what's happening that's like doing a good job and filling in, in those gaps um, with needed programming.
1: Okay. Good. And, and for the benefit of our listeners, I want to review the five principles. Now I will encourage our listeners to also go back and look at the journal of addiction medicine, check out your article. Um, but yeah, the first of these principles, uh, we'll, we'll go through all five. The first principle is to spend the money to save lives. Second is to use evidence in guiding the spending. Three is to invest in youth prevention. Uh, four is to focus on racial equity and five is to develop a fair and transparent process when deciding how to spend the funds. So I wonder if we can elaborate on some of these principles. And I'd like to ask uh, where you feel a good place to start would be.
0: Well, at the time state settlements were taking shape, it became clear that there would be many, many jurisdictions that would have to make their own decisions. There wasn't going to be one place where decisions on funding would be made. And so the country is very diverse. The needs are very diverse. The drug challenges are very diverse. The resources are very diverse. So it's hard to have a one-size-fits-all answer for where settlement money should go. And in fact, one of the benefits of having localities and states involved in spending the settlement money is that they can actually look at the situation that they're facing and come up with a plan that makes sense for them. But in order to do that, they should be following certain principles. So while there were groups who that were saying, "Here are here's a list of evidence-based programs, for example, or evidence-based policies, all that's really helpful, we thought that it would be helpful to provide more general guidance to the states and localities that have to sort through this all and, and to put out there some broad principles that they could follow and then give them tools that they could use to put those principles into practice. And so that's what we have been working with, more than 60 other groups to facilitate. And the response to that has been quite positive. We've had many places around the country seek out help and actually embed these principles in what they're doing to spend the funds.
2: And I'll just build on that to say that these principles are really focused on, like, the process for decision-making because like Josh mentioned, it's so unique to every jurisdiction. And then from a good and stable process, that foundation that's like based on these principles, it can really be used to inform good decision-making for these settlement dollars long-term since they will be paid out over the next 18 years.
1: So using, uh, the first principle is using money to save lives
0: that principle comes from some of the missteps during the tobacco settlement when there was you know a major settlement and tens and tens of millions of dollars was made available to states and many of them did not use that money or only used the tiniest fraction of that money to address tobacco use and In some cases, some of those funds actually were used to subsidize tobacco growing. So it was felt like it was a lost opportunity for tobacco control. And so here the idea is actually spend the money to help people. There are many people suffering. We don't want to see um, jurisdictions trying to pay themselves back for money that they already spent but not help the people who are still in need today.
1: Okay. And Sarah, do you have a comment uh, on the second principle, which is using evidence to guide spending?
2: Yeah. So at this point, there is a large body of research um, from academic researchers and clinicians that show what works and what doesn't to save lives. Um, And so we really encourage state and local governments to to look at the evidence when they're making these funding decisions So to continue to fund programs that are working and that are rooted in evidence um, and to kind of steer away from ones that have been shown not to work. Uh, Another piece of this principle is we really encourage jurisdictions to use either an existing needs assessment that is current and up to date or to to do a new needs assessment to see, you know, what the evidence says specific to their jurisdiction, where the dollars are needed, what types of programs are working, um, and how to make the biggest impact.
1: Very good. Um, So the next one, I think, is a good one, especially as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I guess I'm biased, Um, but that is uh, the principle of youth prevention. Um, Would one of you comment on this?
0: Sure, I'll take that one as a pediatrician. I think, you know, one of the dilemmas of the current crisis is that there is so much need today and there's more need coming around the corner because there are so many young people who are under so much stress and turning to drugs. And so um, here the principle is to have a balanced approach to make sure that there are investments to reduce the... um, the the addiction problem in the future, even as you're working as a jurisdiction to kind of stem the bleeding now. And we um, are recommending really following the evidence here too and not investing in programs that maybe have a local booster, you know, who thinks it really helped, you know, their class or something like that. But really there's no evidence that's good for it and rather look at at programs and types of efforts that build resilience that um, have evidence behind them and that uh, make sense for your community. So there's a structure for each of these kind of major principles and the structure for youth prevention has to do with um, the kinds of efforts um, that have been demonstrated to work in the programs that specifically have been evaluated and found effective.
1: Great. And the next one is focusing on racial equity. Um, Sarah, could you explain the background behind this principle?
2: Focusing on racial equity is a principle that was really important to us. Um, When we look at the recent rates of overdose deaths across the country, we see that those rates are rising more rapidly in Black communities and Indigenous communities. And uh, that is despite the fact that... um, Races use drugs at similar rates. So we're seeing kind of those increases in overdose deaths in those communities. Um, And so this principle was really important for us because this is an an opportunity for jurisdictions to kind of address those uh, racial inequities and address kind of the, the social determinants of health, the barriers that communities of color face when accessing high-quality treatment and recovery support services. Um, another piece of this principle is that communities of color are also disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system for their drug use. And so this is an opportunity to look at um, programs that are more supportive and kind of uh, bring us away from arrest and incarceration as an intervention and and are more supportive. Um, And then a kind of way to do that is involving community members in the solution. So if jurisdictions have oversight committees or boards, having those communities represented in the decision making so we can ensure that programs are um, appropriate for those communities.
1: Very good. And the, the final one is to develop a fair and transparent process when deciding how to spend the funds.
0: Right. And that is a really important principle because what we're hoping for is for communities to come together and recognize the needs in their community and the ways that they can actually make a difference and then see that all the way through to making a difference. So the idea here is first, there should be a process that people understand and can participate in. There should be opportunities for public comment. And when the decisions are made, people should understand what those decisions are. Um, and that then there should be opportunities to, to look at the results of that spending and be able to engage. Because this is a bit of a marathon and not a sprint. You know, the, the funding comes over 18 years. And if it can be used as part of a process to bring people to the table and talk about, you know, what the right investments are and see them in action. And, you know, then then you have a much better chance at those resources being used as effectively as possible with public support and momentum around other aspects of the crisis. So um, we have a number of different um, uh, tools and um, templates Uh, recommendations within this for jurisdictions specifically on how to set up a process that can be transparent and effective
1: good now typically at this point in the podcast i like to see if the guest has recommendations for clinicians in light of everything that's going on with the settlements should this affect their practice in any way or should clinicians be getting more involved with advocacy in order to help drive the direction of these funds So we absolutely would recommend that clinicians get involved in helping to drive
0: the direction of these funds. Clinicians have been doing incredible work with so many patients and families suffering from the ravages of addiction. This is an opportunity for their communities, for their counties, for their states to do better, to support the needs of the people that you know well. And um, there's no guarantee that this money will be spent well. You know, there's some places that have proposed building, you know, new jails with the money. Um, there's some places that have been looking for ways to pay themselves back for other investments and not actually help people who are in desperate need. And so um, showing up, being part of these processes as much as possible, it may require being critical if there's not transparency, if some of the core elements of the good process aren't being found, but also supportive and vocally supportive when good decisions are made and good processes are adopted. All those things really matter. And because it's so distributed, because there's so many different points of distribution of funds, it means that, that so many clinicians can get involved and even one clinician in one meeting can be impactful. It's not like everyone trying to influence one vote of Congress. This is a lot of decisions made by hundreds at a minimum of different levels of government You know that are going to be um, impactful so it's a tremendous opportunity and so even for clinicians that feel most comfortable sitting across from just one patient at a time this is a moment to get together work with your professional association or in other informal groups and find ways to
1: engage
0: uh, with what's happening
1: those those are all great points Um, sarah do you have any any parting thoughts
2: yeah, I think our paper offers a lot of suggestions that kind of build on what Josh just mentioned about ways um, that clinicians can get involved. And I just want to echo how important clinicians will be in making sure these dollars are used effectively. Clinicians, like Josh mentioned, are are educators and experts and advocates. And especially at the local level, some of the folks who are charged with making these decisions Aren't experts and don't know. And so they will really rely on people that hold that knowledge and that firsthand experience um, to help inform their decisions. So, you know, familiarizing yourself with what's happening in your state and your community and finding, you know, points of contact and ways to get involved and share your stories and your experiences and your expertise are really going to help make sure that these dollars. Go where they need to go and save people's
1: lives. All right. Well, this has been a really fantastic discussion with a lot of great points brought up. Um, I really want to uh, express my gratitude to both of you for being guests on the podcast. Thank you for
2: okay, having take us. Take care. Thank
1: you. All right. This article by Dr. Joshua Sharfstein and Sarah Whaley um, entitled Opioid Settlements The Role for Addiction Medicine in Guiding Effective Spending can be found in the Journal of Addiction Medicine.
0: This ends today's podcast. Thank you for listening to Addiction Medicine Beyond the Abstract. All of today's show links can be found in the show notes. Remember, you can preview additional abstracts at journalofaddictionmedicine.com. This program was produced by the American Society of Addiction Medicine.